Welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast about history and how to think about history. For more on this episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can find links and readings related to today's podcast, comment on the conversation, and sign up for our newsletter. And consider becoming a member of the Historically Thinking Common Room, a community of Patreon supporters. Hello, my guest today is Dr. Ben Jones, director of the South Dakota State Historical Society and the South Dakota State Historian. Ben Jones served for 23 years in the United States Air Force, attaining the rank of Lieutenant Colonel. During his service, he taught at the Air Force Academy. Subsequently, he was Dean of the College of Arts and Sciences at Dakota State University from 2013 to 2019, and Secretary of Education of South Dakota from January 2019 to December 2020. He is now the ninth director in the 120-year history of the South Dakota State Historical Society. In 2016, he published Eisenhower's Guerrillas, The Jedbergs, The Maquis, and The Liberation of France. Currently, he is working on a history of South Dakota and hosts a twice-a-month podcast, History 605. Ben Jones, welcome to Historically Thinking. Well, thank you, Al. Nice to be on the show. Well, it you reached out to me and told me that you liked the podcast, and then I discovered that you were the state South Dakota state historian, and I thought, uh, it's been a while since we had a someone who does state history on the podcast, mm-hmm. uh, especially one at that level, and um, I thought it would be really interesting to find out uh, public history at the, at the bleeding edge. Um, yeah. So let's first talk about how Ben Jones left South Dakota and how he returned. And maybe in, in the midst of that, okay. I guess we'll find out how you became a historian. Okay. Um, well, when I was 17, 16, 17, I decided I wanted to be an astronaut. And uh, I was just fascinated with the with, uh, space travel and manned space flight and all that kind of stuff. And I um, went to South Dakota State uh, as an engineering major and uh, hit calculus like a buzzsaw. And I was always interested in history, but never thought it would really, you know, it was just kind of like a lot of people do. They think history is kind of a, uh, a hobby or a pa- or a sidelight and so forth. But uh, the Air Force gave me a full year or a four year scholarship uh, in ROTC, and they really didn't care what I majored in. Uh, a lot of people think to be a pilot, you have to be an engineering major or something. They didn't. They didn't care. They they said we'll train you to fly a plane if that's what you want to do, and and uh, so we'll take all kinds of majors. And so when I was having difficulty with engineering, particularly with the uh, high-end math stuff, I, my mom and I chatted and um, she said, well, why don't you major in history? You re- really like doing that. And so I changed and the Air Force was fine with it. And so uh, it, it, in the end, I didn't wind up uh, flying. I, ca- I came nowhere near being an astronaut, um, but uh, they, the Air Force put me in logistics. I enjoyed that. And then at about the eight, nine year point in my career, uh, I hearkened back to a conversation and I was burned out. I was overseas. I was deploying a lot. Uh, this was in the mid nineties and, uh, I wanted to get my master's in history and my air force ROTC detachment commander at SDSU had told me about a program where the air force Academy gets a certain number of slots every year to sponsor officers to go get their master's and then join the faculty. And so I put in for that and got a, got a slot and they sent me to Nebraska to get my master's at Nebraska. So I, I, that was a great opportunity. Um, I studied under Pete Maslowski, who was the co-author of the very common book used for the American military history courses in colleges all over the country called For the Common Defense. I was just tickled pink. I had used that at SDSU. That was my military history textbook. And so there I was in Pete Maslowski's history class at Nebraska. And I taught for three years at the Air Force Academy after graduating from a master's. I re-met a high school uh, friend. We fell in love and got married. And so for all kinds of reasons, both professional and personal, Nebraska was a great uh, opportunity for me. And then did another couple of uh, Air Force jobs and they uh, agreed to send me for my PhD at Kansas. And I wanted to study uh, kind of continue on something I had done in my master's degree program uh, with the Jedbergs and, and unconventional warfare in France and guerrilla warfare in general. And so the nation's leading scholar of the French resistance was at Kansas. 
and he agreed to take me on as a PhD student. And so worked with John Sweets at, uh, at Kansas. And also for personal reasons, that wound up being a great uh, place for me. My family had grown up. I had cousins and my dad had grown up in Kansas. My mom lived in the Kansas City area. So um, uh, kind of went back home, even though I had not grown up there. Um, was close to a lot of very familiar things from my boyhood when we go visit grandparents and things like that. So, so KU was a great experience. I got my PhD and then ultimately that became the book that you, you uh, mentioned. In the, in and we're going to have to have a separate conversation about it because I'm, it's a, it's a curious thing. You had been serving in a special operations wing in England during yes. the, during the Balkans conflict. So you had been in, in deploying into Africa as well, doing various things. Right. You'd research the book and then you're in Afghanistan attached to, uh, I guess, combined headquarters. Um, and so the historians rarely have a chance to have their <laughs> practical life. Right. So uh, side by side with a research interest, um, right. I guess we've had Steele Brandon who deployed as an intelligence officer to Afghanistan okay. in the army, who was then wrote about, um, the army of the Roman Republic. And, uh, ah. he took Polybius, he took Polybius with him in his, you know, in his pack. So yes. there's that, there's that, that's a it kind is. of connection, but otherwise it's difficult to find that, but we'll have to, yeah. we'll have to wait for some other time to do that. Okay. Um, sure. In your email to me, you had said that, you know, you thought that you weren't going to be seeing South Dakota again when you left and that, and you seem that was, you were okay with that. So how did you end up back in South Dakota? Right. Well, that was the, you know, when I was 18, my biggest desire was to get the heck out of South Dakota. Um, but after marrying uh, a South Dakotan and my parents uh, moved back to South Dakota, they had, my dad had retired and they moved around for a bit, but then they moved back to South Dakota. My brother was back. I had a sister that was probably going to come back. And so family again was converging in Southeastern South Dakota and uh, a couple of jobs looked promising. My wife wanted to move back. Her her mom was sick. And so we uh, just decided that m my oldest child was in middle school at the time. So uh, we were either going to stay in Colorado or make a break for it then with my daughter who was moving into seventh grade. And so uh, I looked around for a job and applied for that, that uh, dean's position at Dakota State University and uh, and was fortunate to get it. And so that, that brought me back to South Dakota. You're now the state historian and the director of the South Dakota Historical Society. Do those two jobs always go together? I mean, are they, are they connected? Um, no, when I, you know, the, when they offered me the job, the, the predecessor, my predecessor retired, announced his retired into retirement. And, uh, he had been in the position for, I think, 16, 17 years. And uh, the position reports to the secretary of education, which at the time was me. And so it was kind of kind of, uh, uh, kind of like Petraeus, who went from CENTCOM to Afghanistan. Uh, I was being asked to take a demotion, essentially. But, but uh, they said, hey, you, we really want you to do that job. Uh, and I said, well, the position as a public historian... Um, needs to be somebody who is readily um, identifiable, recognizable to the general public who's interested in history. People of South Dakota ought to know who the state historian is and ought to feel like they can just walk in and, and have a chat. They ought to be able to reach out and ask us questions. They should, and I should be kind of on a speaking circuit and be very public um, in what I do. And they said, well, yeah, we agree. That sounds great. And so um, the governor and the chief of staff uh, agreed to that. And I said, I need to kind of, we need to formally add that to the title. Um, some states have state historians. Many of them are, are affiliated with one of the universities in the state. Um, and I just thought this could be another model, the way of doing it. Uh, the first gentleman who was in the position wrote tons of stuff. He wrote four or five books while he was a state historian. Uh, and, and the position as the, the state historical society at the time collected all kinds of demographic statistics on the state because, you know, 1901, early 20th century, there was nobody else doing that, but you had to kind of do that. Uh, and so the, 
that entity did that at the time. Um, and while all these kind of stats were rolling in, he was just churning out uh, articles and books uh, through his 25 odd years that he was state historian. And so I kind of wanted to re re-engage or, uh, or get that title back. And so uh, that kind of led to the, the dual hattedness to use a military term, uh, kind of two hats um, in one position. And I also teach a class uh, online for South Dakota State University. So I'm kind of online in a classroom and, um, and doing this. Yeah, I'm busy. Yeah. Not to sound like a coastal snob because I'm not, but I'm sure a lot of them listen. And they're thinking South Dakota has a history. They have a historical society. But as I've spent some time digging through the website, it's amazing the breadth and width of activities that mm -hmm. a historical society does, um, even in a small state in terms of population as South Dakota is. Could you give us some yeah. sense of the things that cross your desk uh, that you're responsible for? Well, we're a 40-member uh, staffed uh, state agency uh, with a budget of $6.6 in state and federal and, and charitable funds, um, fund our projects. We have uh, five divisions, archaeology, archives, museum, state historic preservation, and a small press. And so, yeah, we're, we kind of have our fingers in a lot of different stuff. On any given day, the state archaeologist might call me up and say, hey, um, we're doing a consultation with one of the um, uh, tribes, and we're hosting uh, that as we adjudicate an issue with a, a cultural heritage site found on tribal land or regarding some type of aspect of tribal history. Um, we publish uh, four or five books a year. We try to do a children's book that has something to do with South Dakota culture or history as well as scholarly history. The press is a member of the American Association of University Presses, um, and we have uh, obligations to keep the standards high with, with uh, scholarly publications there. Our state uh, SHPO office, the Historic Preservation Office, um, gets, well, we have probably anywhere from eight to 12 properties that we nominate for historic listings um, every year. And each one of the, the work that goes into preparing a nomination is quite profound. As some of them look like a master's thesis worth of, of research, uh, photographs uh, uh, that go into that. So the National Park Service um, uh, can, at the federal level, can take a look at that and say, yeah, this church or this house or this bank building that was built in 1901 or so that this should, this should be on the National Historic Registry. So, um, and then the archives uh, and the State Museum do what, what many historians are very familiar with what they do. Um, and we get, uh, in 2019, we had 16,000 visitors uh, visit the museum. Uh, the archives gets calls um, every day. It is, you know, when I was stationed in Europe, I was stunned to walk into a bookstore in Germany and see books written by Germans for Germans about Sitting Bull. Uh, it, it's kind of amazing. And when I was uh, buying a car from a British um, dealer uh, uh, in uh, my tour in the UK, he was filling out the application for the registration. He said, well, where were you born? I said, I was born in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. And he said, Sioux Falls. Sioux Falls, that sounds so exotic. <laughs> and I just laughed at him and he, he did not appreciate my laughter. I just thought he just, you know, that's not exotic. Sioux Falls is not an exotic place at all. But when you grow up in Britain, you know, it sounds like this amazing exotic location. And so uh, there's that fascination from Europe, Japan uh, and, and other places around the world. Uh, continue with things like Deadwood, uh, Lauren Goes Wilder, which is our hottest seller, the press's hottest seller. We've done a series of books about Lauren Goes Wilder's uh, writing and, and her biography and autobiography and so forth. And, uh, so that, yeah, South Dakota has a history and a lot of people outside of South Dakota are interested in the things and events that, that occurred here. As you've mentioned, you've got a museum uh, that's partially underground. Uh, it, it might therefore have a leaky roof. Leaky roofs require fundraising. 
Um, you've also mentioned a $6 million budget. Uh, what of that budget comes from the state? Uh, what comes from fundraising for the right. foundation that you've also described? Uh, how much of your time do you spend uh, doing that? Right. So the, um, the building was built in the late 80s, and it's meant to evoke the Arikara, um uh, Earthen Lodge. So it's built... Yeah, it, a lot of people look at it and they don't necessarily think of the Arikara, the Mandan uh, structures. They think of the pioneer sod hut that's in, kind of cut into a riverbank or uh, something like that. Um, but yeah, it was meant to uh, be patterned after the Arikara, which along the villages in the Missouri and uh, central South Dakota and southern southeastern South Dakota, all along the Missouri, the Arikara tribes and from... Uh, early estates hard to peg down, but until about the 1830s and 40s, there were tons of villages all along the river in structures that look similar to that. Uh, and so that's what it's meant to evoke is uh, is that. But the, our, our, the foundation, you'd asked about that, They um, their goal is to uh, partner with us to um, fulfill our needs for things like such as digitization. You know, we try to make records available to the public and uh, we have various kind of a list that we're working down of things that are of greater interest than some, you know, our archive can can tell based on the inquiries we get and so forth, what records and collections would be great to put online. And so, for instance, we in the 70s, uh, the Doolittle Raiders had a reunion in Rapid City, South Dakota, and General Doolittle was there and a uh interview was done with him and one of the South Dakotans who participated in the raid. Uh, and so we recently put that online. So when you have things like that, you try to just, whether they're audio or, or um, photographs um, and all that, you know, costs money. They have two staff that are paid for by the uh, foundation and they spend um, uh, eight hours a day um, professionally digitizing you know, high quality photos and making them searchable and findable in the library like database and so forth. So to do that well, it, uh, it costs a lot of money. So, um, when I was, um, a kid in South traveling through South Dakota, uh, I remember having the vivid impression that South Dakota is like a series of large islands. It's mm -hmm. a big state mm -hmm. for an Easter. Um, but, you know, um, you know, with my uh, my mother's family basically centered on yeah. Mitchell, uh, Mitchell Chamberlain. Mm -hmm. um, so you've got that's the the southeast, the sort of midwestern part. Then, of course, there for the 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 strong division that impressed was impressed upon me by Dakotans is east of the river, right, west right. of the river, which you know people outside the uh, uh, easterners don't know understand that that's a division in the mind. Uh, and then you'd pass through other islands and the, the, the reservations are their own yep. kinds of islands amidst yep. that. And then, but then rapid city, that's its own Island way at the other mm -hmm. end of the state, you know, it's like, and then, you know, I never even got to like the long sort of fringe along the North Dakota border. Yeah. Um, so it, it, it strikes me that um, it sometimes must be hard for some people to think of a state historical society in a place that's so um, spread out in mm -hmm. those islands. Um, and that you're in a way you're um, the the act that one of the functions of the South Dakota Historical Society is to unite all these localities into a, a common story. Yeah, and or to recognize all the stories. I think that's the thing that I've come to realize as as Secretary of Education. I travel around a lot and we'll go from different school districts to different school districts and see these different communities and. Uh, I realized that South Dakota was a complicated place when I left it when I was 22, but I had no appreciation for the complexity of, um, of the state as a whole and the different layers of cultures that one can find. You know, Sioux Falls, Brookings, what we call the I-29 corridor that runs kind of along the eastern band of counties on the, on the east side of the state. Um, kind of has its, it, it's becoming known for its kind of own economy. People often call it the I-29 corridor. Um, and then there's uh, East River, West River, and then the Indian reservations have their 
um, own culture and their own uh, history, but then altogether, the only, uh, it could be thought of that the politics of state government is the only thing that unifies it, uh, tax base and revenue and that kind of bureaucratic thing. Um, so yeah, there is a Midwesternness. There's a Great Plainsness. There's a Black Hills. There's uh, farming. There's ranching. There's mining. That's kind of the origin of the state's economy, territorial economy, and sta early state economy. Um, and since World War II, there's been a, a concerted effort by political leaders in the state to diversify the economy while not changing the things that we like about where we live. So there's that in uh, kind of built-in tension to, to diversify the economy without losing things um, around an agricultural economy, a traditional Midwestern economy, uh, ranching, farming, hunting. Hunting is big in South Dakota, um, a, a big, big business, business and a big pastime. I mean, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's what people do in the fall and um, uh, golfing has become, uh, it's always been big. My dad spent more time golfing than hunting, but um, you know, people like outdoors and and uh, so that's a part of the aspect of, of our culture too. So, as you, as state historian, do you still travel around yeah. uh, and try to and try to let localities, let local stories mm -hmm. know that they're important as local right. stories and they're connected to a larger story? Uh, yeah, I I gave a talk uh, last week. I was in Custer State Park. The week before, I was in Watertown. Uh, the week before that, I was out of state on a national conference uh, in Buffalo, New York. But yeah, I try to get out and about. I've got an invite uh, to come speak in March to uh, a group in DeSmet, where I grew up. And uh, I try to get out. My staff certainly gets out uh, uh, to do similar things. And we have a, a genealogical ace in the archives that's really well known around the state for helping people research their genealogy. And she's she's out and about quite a bit doing workshops and so forth. So uh, archives and, uh, uh, is a large aspect of that. They have a public role as well. And, um, and the press, uh, goes to book festivals. The state humanities council recently had its uh, annual book festival and we had a large presence there. So try to be very visible and uh, approachable. So how do you have a sense of how many sort of local historical sites there are, um, I guess the I think the era of the sort of house museum has come and mm -hmm. gone, but they they linger yeah. on um, in straightened circumstances. Some of them are going to have to figure out a a future for themselves in which maybe they are, they sell, but with a covenant to for of, of preservation for mm -hmm. the future owners and things like that. But others, you know, maybe others have a a different role in the community or an importance that or that's not possible. Um, how do you partner with places like that that are important to the history of, of South Dakota and its peoples, um, but at the same time want to preserve their local independence and are and want to be certain that their interests are yeah, preserved? We, um, uh, that's a very good question. I think a lot of things we can do is just kind of, um, before we start talking about uh, monetary support, uh, just kind of be the go-to place for how to do something, how to get something going. Um, whether it's a county historical society that might want to regenerate itself after years of maybe not doing much activity or a local community that wants to do that, or maybe somebody who says, boy, this house used to be the home of, or was maybe the local hospital and it should be uh, preserved and so forth. So we, we can link them up to how-tos on how to do that. I was talking with a gentleman in Custer State Park uh, when I was there recently, and he said that, you know, the handbook needs updating. And I, well, yeah, it probably, <laughs> it's a good point. I think we ought to take a look at that and update that handbook because things have changed. I, uh, one of the things I grew to, uh, I've grown to appreciate more was the National Historic Preservation Act, which was passed in the 1960s, um, that created this national historic, uh, listing that you can get on, um, and uh, that is empowered, well, and it funds. So you ask for uh, part of the, the federal funding. Most of our federal funding is for our State Historic Preservation Office um, in the process. The staff there is federally funded. 
and uh, and the work they do is is in some ways um, as much of the National Park Service as they are a state agency. Uh, with that, so without and those are in all fifty states, and the territories have a similar uh, organization within somewhere in state government. Uh, some states put it in different places, but uh, organizationally, yeah. Well, it's interesting in, in Virginia. That's a state separate state mm-hmm. entity. It shares a building with what's now the Virginia Museum of History okay. and Culture. Yeah, but in, in South Dakota, but it's that's a that's a private since eighteen thirty sure. sort of organization. That, the for, formerly known as the Historical yeah. Society, okay. um, but and you guys have mashed right. it all together, kind of in, in one right. big stew. Uh, it used to be in another location. It was affiliated loosely with University of South Dakota in Vermilion, and in the late nineties, through a budget cutting and a governor who wanted to consolidate things, it was brought to Peter. Um, so yeah, they they right now they sit right outside my office in our in our building up here. Um. Let's talk about the cultural center because sure. I'm a sucker for uh, a good sure. museum. Um, uh, if um, you were taking us, if we were, if this is a video mm-hmm. tour, uh, what would be the things that you would want uh, viewers to see in the in the exhibits okay, that sure. would uh, tell some sort of story of, of of South Dakota and its peoples? Well, the when you first walk into the museum, um, the collection is heavily. Uh, designed around the culture of the uh, Ocheti Shakoin, which is the what they call themselves, what is often referred to as the Great Sioux Nation, a kind of confederation of, of tribes, uh, Dakota, Lakota, Nakota-speaking tribes. And the display there uh, uh, talks about the language groups. There's, there's kind of a, a brief description of the different uh, language groups within the Great Sioux Nation. And you know, Sioux is a is a complicated word with an interesting history. The uh, the Sioux is a French. Well, okay, go into that. So the word Sioux, S I O U X, is a French corruption of uh, Ashnabe or Ojibwe word. Uh, the Ojibwe were the enemy, for the most part, of the Dakota and Lakota tribes. And so, when the French fur traders first met with the Ojibwe. And they started talking about the different tribes around uh, neighboring the Ojibwe. The Ojibwe said, oh, they're the Nadasasu, which means uh, snake in the grass. Uh, And then over time, the French left off the first part of the word and just called them the Sioux. Uh, But they themselves uh, call themselves, uh, as it translates into English, it's the seven council fires. So it's kind of a broader confederation of of the Dakota, Lakota, and Nakota language groups. Um, and uh, Lakota or Dakota means friend or ally. Um, and so the Ocheti Shakui is the seven council fires of these three language groups. Uh, <laughs> I can I can see Ocheti Shakui is a much more neutral term. Uh, yes, it's an extremely uh, neutral uh, term. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but unfortunately, the word Sioux stuck on everything. So Sioux Falls, the Sioux River, yeah. um, which means snake in the grass. Uh, it's, it's kind of. Uh, well, I mean, this is a yeah. very interesting thing because I, I, and this is this is a, a fraught topic, but I've been reading um, something about this lately. The Arikara might have a different story yes, to tell. Um, and so you're dealing when we talk about South Dakota and its mm-hmm. peoples. Um, even prior to prior to white contact, we can we can debate mm-hmm. this. We just this is, conversation is going to drop right after a conversation on peace and friendship with Stephen mm-hmm. Aaron. And one of Steve's Stephen's points is is that it's oftentimes the the presence of empire that causes more animosity between local peoples. That you know sometimes right. oftentimes they come to some sort of rough accommodation or mm-hmm. friendship or even peace. But it's the presence of imperial control right. or presence or just a mania for tidiness from from a central location, which leads to trouble. This is yeah. true enough. Um, but of course, there's uh, the Rikara might look at the uh, the uh, Lakota and say, eh, you know, they kind of seem imperial right. to us. Right. You know, uh, we were having a nice life here before they decided to stop using canoes and, and, and take to horses. 
So when you've got the history of these multiple peoples, uh, mm -hmm. which are contested, it's a, you can't possibly be in a position to adjudicate between them. So how do you how right. do you deal with that? Just present their stories side by side. Well, I think uh, as I as I'm working on my history of South Dakota, I think you know you always have to go back to what if you consider uh, the process of say peer review, um, right? So I if I were to publish a history of South Dakota that would um, repeat what I've heard some folks say from all walks of life, right? I'd have to say, well, what's the evidence for that? And so I've, there's a wide variety of claims about this particular issue. Um, and they base their um, claim on the, the oral traditions that, that have been handed down. And, you know, I, okay, I can respect that. Um, but I think I have an obligation to, well, for instance, the Arikara, to also make sure that it, the history would reflect something that they would recognize as, um, uh, if not true, at least responsibly well argued. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because um, they, they have an oral the tradition they too. Phrase that, but and if it's at variance with yes, another oral yes. tradition, then this is like we're in some kind of Michel Foucault, like you know, we're in a. Oh yeah, my gosh. I mean, I'm serious. Right. This is where this is where it takes us. <laughs> we're playing yeah. games with the words, yeah. which which lead to power moves. Yeah. Right. Um, yes. Uh, I'm probably one of Michel Foucault's least uh, biggest yeah, fans. Yeah, well, I, I, had a, I had six months where I was quite a fan. So, yeah, but go on. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, I, I think, you know, as I've thought about how to do this very question, I, I'm just going to uh, retreat back to responsible scholarship and the way I was trained and let the um, feedback uh, chips fall where they may. Okay. Um, so I'll stop. We'll, we'll get back to that, uh, if not now, yeah. <laughs> in the future. So you're going to have a, <laughs> a large Ochetaway discussing the, the, the Ochetaway cultures, uh, their influences. Mm -hmm. And then yep. what, I guess that's the iconic, the sort of symbol of the state historical site is, is this iconic running horse. Is that like sort of what? Yes, yes, and that that uh, we call that the horse effigy. Um, it's probably uh, the most prized uh, item in our collection. It was carved, we think, by a gentleman named uh, again we think No Two Horns, probably in the eighteen seventies, uh, commemorating his uh, his horse that had probably been killed in battle. Perhaps at Little Bighorn, not really sure. Uh, it may have been some other uh, other fight, but um, he took a, a, a maybe I don't know three and a half foot long log and carved a horse out of it. It's rather this is amazing piece of it's beautiful artwork. I, I can't wait to see um, it in person. I mean, but it's 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 beautiful. Yeah. Uh, about a dozen years ago or so, the Smithsonian took it on a tour and it went to Washington and New York and Paris and Kansas City. Um, it got a lot of decent press out of that. Uh, but yeah, that's become our icon, our logo. It was it was then given to a congregational missionary, Mary C. Collins, who's quite, quite a lady. She's a single woman up on the uh, Standing Rock Reservation dealing with people like Sitting Bull and uh, American Horse and some of the other tribal leaders in the late 1880s and 1890s, um, as their civilization was, you know, going undergoing vast change, uh, and she was a single woman missionary, congregational missionary, in northern central South Dakota, um, trying to spread the gospel. It's just amazing. But uh, she then. Um, when she passed away, her family donated her papers and that particular thing uh, to the state archives, and so yeah, we have that in our museum. So what else? What else? What else would you show us? Well, I, I'd also want to make sure that you saw the Wounded Knee um, massacre. We have a small um, uh, exhibit about that, uh, which it, we're redoing the museum. Uh, we're 
kind of a massive effort underway to rethink the museum. And I'd like that to be a more, um, um, to communicate the complexity of that incident far more effectively than it currently does. Um, but the, the Wounded Knee Massacre, which happened just a few months into South Dakota statehood, when the U.S. Army was still uh, stationed in the state uh, and went out back on combat uh, maneuvers due to the uh, what they called the Messiah War or the Ghost War, Ghost Dance kind of taking off within the tribes at the time and causing a lot of overreaction by the by um, Indian uh, reservation authorities at the time and sent in the army and this disaster happened this absolute absolute disaster the seventh cavalry committed um, so I'd want to make sure that you know that uh, and then um, probably the thing that gets the most um, popular response in a far different way is when I was a kid there was a there was a program on the local television show called Captain Eleven, uh, and it was a local weatherman who would dress up in a kind of a um, space age suit and pretend to be kind of an astronaut like guy, and he would just play cartoons and stuff. Um, we have his outfit on display, and uh, we often get a lot of comments about people seeing the Captain Eleven outfit. Yeah, we I, I, as an out of state visit that we just won't get that one. That would, no, <laughs> that, would, that wouldn't make any sense. <laughs> <laughs> Probably I was not. hoping you would say uh, it was like a gold-plated threshing machine or something like that. Uh, we do have a stagecoach that did the Bismarck to Deadwood line. Um, that's that's, a, that's a big hit too. Thanks for bringing that up. Yeah, uh, uh, the stagecoach, a little bit of the steamship stuff, a fair amount of railway uh, materials. We have a shotgun that was uh, the railway company traded a local settler in Pier. They wanted the land and they gave him uh, a cash payment and a, a really nice shotgun. So we have the shotgun in the, <laughs> in the collection. So, um, what is, uh, other than captain 11, was that channel 11, <laughs> I guess, uh, what's a sort of, uh, uh yeah, at the time it was. Yeah. Yeah. What was, uh, that's so clever. Uh, what was a representative like 20th century, uh, you know, some, some mm-hmm. tchotchke, uh, some sort of uh, rep- something representative of, of 20th century South Dakota. I'm sorry, uh, not, I'm sorry not sorry to pin yeah. you against the corner of the, your office like this. Well, yeah, the, the Chatsky would be the, probably the, the we have a collection about communications writ large. So there's WNAX, which was one of the first radio stations in the country. And in fact, west of the Mississippi, you may know this, uh, radio stations are supposed to start with K, but it started before they set that in place. And so we have a, a radio station in South Dakota that's obviously west of the Mississippi. It still has the W moniker as opposed to what all the east of the Mississippi monikers have. So um, televisions. Uh, we also have one of the first IMAX is in our is in our uh, collection, um, and a lot of things with communication and the interstate highway system, which connected the the state together in in a major way for commercial traffic and yeah. so forth. Uh, Senator Munt. Uh, was big on um, getting the interstate highway, I-29, which I mentioned previously, uh, originally was going to be on the Minnesota side of the border, but he was he was a big wig in the U.S. Senate, and he got it put in South Dakota instead for us. And so that's, that's um, major. It's interesting. I mean, this is, I, I want to kind of move into a little bit just to touch on this history of South Dakota you're writing. I was thinking about this, and South Dakota has has had disproportionately powerful senators in its history. It seems to me, um, Senator Munt, mm-hmm. case in point, who's, I, yeah. but Peter Norbeck, he had some, pull. yes, um, he had some pull. Yeah. And, uh, I think buried in the same gra- graveyard as my grandparents are great. No, my great, great grandparents. Um, oh. I think. And, um, and I mean, George McGovern too, in his way, I mean, right. the base of right. the founder of modern American progressivism. Um, yeah, South Dakota. Yeah, McGovern, Tom Daschle. I, yeah. I spoke to him uh, two, three weeks ago. Did an oral history with the uh, Senator Daschle. Um, That's right. I mean, I and, think, and John Toon is what third, third in the Senate now. I mean, so it's interesting that South Dakota, uh, yeah, has had uh, has had that sort of um, 
the Senate minority. Yeah, it's uh, it's been nice. I think we. Uh, um, but still, one of the I mean, old political he, and, hands and told me a few years ago. Move up in the South Dakota retires. Um, I mean, so it's interesting that low tax that South Dakota has uh, had that sort low of spending people to the state house and to the governorship, but to the people they send into Washington, they want to make sure they bring the federal dollars home. <laughs> So uh, there's a kind of bifurcation there in political philosophies about that. that um, certainly the public works, uh, Senator Francis Case, which is probably not well known nationally, he got the, uh, along with Munt, got a lot of the dam projects done along the Missouri River in North Dakota and South Dakota and Montana, a major project <clears throat> that um, everyone still enjoys today. They feed hydroelectric power into the national grid. Um, and South Dakota, between the windmills that are going up and those hydroelectric dams, we produce 50% of the energy that we use, the electrical energy that we use. So um, a lot of visitors are kind of surprised to hear that that scale of uh, renewable energy that goes on in this part of the country. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it leads to, that's why you see big boats behind trailers in the middle of um, a dry, arid plain. Where are they going? <laughs> yes. <laughs> They're going to the going to Lake, Lake, uh, Lake, Lake Francis Case to do some yeah, Lake big, uh, big fishing. Yep. Um, so uh, you've been puzzling out this South Dakota history project. Are you, I mean, it's, I always feel like writing a history of Virginia, you kind of have to go to the Museum of uh, Virginia History and Culture first. Um, it's it's kind of a cheat. Yeah. But there is, um, sure. so what are you thinking about the lineaments? What are the, the what's the skeletal structure of South Dakota history? Well, I'm trying to organize it along, you know, primary questions. Is why do people come here? That would be a question. And by people, I mean all the way back to 10,000 years ago. We have we have archaeological evidence of that's a good question. Of, uh, yeah, what why do people come here? And the answer is largely the resources, primarily the game. So mm-hmm. people came here to hunt, um, and whether they're coming, they're flying in from Texas to hunt pheasant today, or they came here 10,000 years ago to chase the bison down and run them over a cliff. Uh, that's why they came here. It's um, a very interesting connection. Yeah, um, and I'm going to try to organize things about the then the tensions that's created, obviously about any competition for resources, whether it's um, land or game or wind or uh, transportation networks, railroads, and so forth that came here. Um, actually, South Dakota kind of got skipped in the early. Uh, you could go faster from Minnesota to the West Coast uh, on the northern route in what became North Dakota. And so South Dakota was kind of at the tail end of the, of the railroad building boom. And it, was a, it was like a, it was a big sort of empty spot in the middle of the railroad map at, at right. a time when Iowa was overbuilding railroad capacity at a ridiculous, you know, leading to a remarkable number of railroad failures. Yes. I don't know um, how I know that. Why do I? Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. yeah so, and, and, so there's that. Um, and then the East-West River divide that you talked about, you know, that's really um, uh, the topography and the uh, type of land across the Great Plains uh, sets the scene for that. So the East uh, and the river, of course, being the Missouri River, the east of the Missouri um, is largely, you know, you can, uh, in the 1880s, you could farm on 120 acres, you can make a living. Um, uh, you can't do that anymore. Um, at least not solely. So the, the, the crops that grow, uh, now largely, uh, corn and soybeans that are grown, um, say east of the James river, uh, then it kind of translates into ranch country that uh, by the time you get to Western South Dakota, you need thousands of acres to uh, run a herd. So, yeah, I, I, I was wondering, I was going to, I was going to ask you how many acres per cow calf pair. And I would assume it's somewhere between 10 to 20. Uh, you know, I, mean, I should know I, that I, you're embarrassing me. I don't know that what the, <laughs> what no, the no, I just looked it up in Southern New Jersey. It's 1.5. Okay. Which is Ooh. why which is why this was extremely popular with poor Germans. <laughs> that's, and that's why Southeast Pennsylvania is the best poor man's country. Yeah. Yeah. You know, this, the Delaware right. Valley. Right. Um, I think of my, my in-laws, uh, he is, my father-in-law 
is on a farm currently that's been in the family 150 years. So the second Wisconsin Cavalry Civil War veteran that came and homesteaded in 1873 and then got the land in 1878, um, he got his 120 acres. Uh, my father-in-law has only been able to keep the farm in the family because he was also a cattle broker and uh, his wife had different jobs from time to time and so forth. So a lot of people these days, if they ranch, um, they also have, uh, well, the typical thing is for the ranch family to also the, um, be a, uh, the, the mom in the family is also a school teacher or a nurse. So there's kind of a steady stream of, of uh, income that way, which also has good benefits. Uh, and they can kind of weather the ups and downs of the ag economy. What, um, so we got, uh, that, does that cover the sort of qu big questions? Or is there any other questions? Because it's kind of cool yeah. that you're writing even a history of the South Dakota to answer answer questions that you've probably been puzzling about one way or the other for a right. long time. Right, and I think the other thing is how does, early on, these Civil War veterans that found the state, they have a very, you know, small R republicanism political philosophy. Uh, how does that translate uh, yeah, through politics over time? Uh, South Dakota is one of the, South Dakota is, was the first state to start with the public initiative. So we, we are, uh, there's a populism streak that exists in South Dakota and has existed since the 1880s, 1890s. And that populism streak brought about the, uh, the, the capacity for the people to overturn the state legislature on a law. And so, um, yeah. I don't want to. I don't want to get all political culture nerd on you, but I don't associate populism and republicanism. Small R are not necessarily associated, you know. Um, and and public and referenda, public referenda, and republic shirt. Well, I mean, what well, I'm just. I think it's a great topic because I I heard someone say the other day, and I've been thinking about it. Is that um, we've had 30, 40 years of fifty years of really lots of historians talking about. Um, democracy and liberalism in the United States and theorizing about it, basically. But that republicanism is curiously underappreciated and, un and under-understood. Yes, um, that is true. I hear uh, the, uh, the gentleman who served as Speaker of the House two or three years ago in the state, um, he made a comment that uh, on the floor of the House, he said something like, uh, you know, democracy can be the worst form of government from time to time. And he was just riffing off of Aristotle. But uh, a lot of the media in the state just pounded him for criticizing democracy. And and I had to correct one of the reporters and say, well, he's he's just quoting Aristotle. Don't you, don't you know? <laughs> and they didn't. <laughs> oh, that's a, a dangerous Macedonian. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, if we talk to Jonathan Israel, that, that probably would be yeah. true. Um, but I, I mean, it, it, understanding how Republicanism works, um, which is not always, which is not the same thing as liberalism or democracy. Right. Yes. Um, but understanding how Republicanism right. works on a local level is, is right. really important because that's actually how most of our things right. get done, right. um, you know, uh, on a on a state, state local level. Well, I mean, I, I want to conclude by asking you this, this question. Um, why does the history of states matter? Mm. Um, I'm, I sometimes feel about state history the way I feel about presidential history, which is like, I want to fall asleep. Um, but, uh, or I just kind of sneer and then fall asleep. But on the other hand, um, I also know it's good box office. People want to know about the history of their state. Uh, they, um, that's where they yep. live. It's important to them. And as um, someone on the podcast has pointed out in the past, a state is, it's, it's an important constitutional question. States are constitutional mm -hmm. entities with mm -hmm. a history. Um, so they have a political culture. They have in many ways also an underlying culture that led them to be a state in the right. first place. Um, so, okay, what, what are some reasons for you for why a, a state history is important? Well, if, yeah, as you were alluding to, if federalism matters, certainly state histories matter at the, at the political level, how states were put together. Um, everything from that, uh, there's a, I think it's a History Channel show, How States Got Their Shapes, or maybe it's a National Geo show. 
how states got their shapes. I used to watch, uh, love watching that with my son to see just kind of the, the as territories formed into states and the, uh, the borders and the political um, shenanigans that went on uh, as deals were made and so forth to make sure that, uh, well, Indiana had a coastline and so forth and access into the Great Lakes. And so that's why it has that little, why Gary is there and so forth. Um, those stories are kind of interesting because they, I think they reveal when you see the political machinations go on at local and state levels, uh, you realize people are human, right? I mean, this natural um, uh, proclivity for, for power, for greed, for uh, respect, uh, all the things that motivate people to do things uh, play out not only in fierce political battles in Washington, but they also play out in battles in Pierre and Sacramento and uh, all over the country at the state level. And I think those stories um, tell a great deal about what it is to be human uh, just as well. And they pro- and they matter uh, just as much as the, lo- as the national histories do because they're more, they can be more relevant. They can be seen as to, to be more relevant, um, particularly when uh, in a small state like South Dakota, you know, uh, Kevin Bacon's six degrees of separation is probably three or maybe even two. I mean, uh, in the Air Force, if I would meet from somebody from South Dakota, it wouldn't take very long before we'd find somebody that we both knew. Um, and and in history, as you go back two or three generations um, and you're talking about what to me might be a historical personality, uh, and I'll be sharing that with a group at a community talk or something, and somebody will inevitably say, oh, my dad was in his class, or he spoke at my dad's high school graduation, or, you know, Joe Foss in particular, uh, World War II uh, Medal of Honor recipient uh, and and governor of South Dakota. Um, uh, I get that reaction a lot. Uh, people love hearing about Joe Foss because they knew him if they're older, they knew him as a kid, or their parents knew him. And so that kind of local um, connection. And then when you can say, well, Joe Foss was involved in this kind of political machination or, or McGovern became uh, into the Senate because he, he beat Joe Foss for the congressional seat or so forth like that. People then make those connections and then they um, uh, get those, that local connection. It seems very close, very real uh, to them when, when it's, uh, the place that they live every day. My guest today has been Dr. Ben Jones. He is state historian of South Dakota and the director of the South Dakota Historical Society. Ben, thanks so much for being part of Historically Thinking. You're welcome. Thanks, Al. And thanks so much to you as well for being a part of Historically Thinking. If you like the podcast, then share it with a friend or many friends. Vivian Lundy is our assistant producer. John Ruddat is our sound engineer. I'm Al Zambone, and I'll be back next week with more history to think about and to shape the way we think about the present.